Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and I hope you're well wherever you are in the world today. Uh, this is episode 100 of um, talking to our phenomenal and talented robotics and AI community in Australia. And it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to my guest today. She is Deanna Hood. She is the Australian Young Engineer of the Year 2022, former developer on Ross itself at Open Robotics in Silicon Valley, and a self-proclaimed maths nerd, which is where it all started. Starting university at 15 years old and going on to graduate top of a master's in robotics and computer vision. She loves traveling as much as she loves learning, and she's as compassionate as she is intelligent. So from that solid foundation, she's now a senior robotics engineer with a career that's taken her all over the world, using technology and especially robotics to change the world for the better. Diana, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, it's great to be here and congrats on the 100th episode. I've loved the podcast. Thank you very much. And I couldn't think of a more worthy person to talk to to end 2022 on. So um, reading your bio, I'm, I'm absolutely in awe of all of your accomplishments at this um, tender age that you are. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, okay, thanks. I'll, I'll go back. <laughs> It's, I like that sigh. Oh, I like yeah, that well, it's, it's, hard to know, it's hard to know where to start. I think um, sometimes people, the thing that catches people's eye most often is that I started uni at 15, as you mentioned. And it's an interesting detail about my life because now, like 15 years on it, it's not, it doesn't feel like it's relevant in everyday life. But when I think about it, it actually probably does influence a lot of what I do and how I live my life because starting university early meant that I was choosing my career at age 14 and, you know, it's a hard enough choice at any age, but I had never heard of engineering at the time and that's, I think, why I go on now to have sort of two parallel careers and my my primary career, as you would have figured out, is as a roboticist, um, which I got into through my love of maths. But then I have this secondary career of inspiring the next generation, uh, knowing that I came a little closer than makes me feel comfortable. I came uncomfortably close to, to missing out on figuring out what engineering was. So, so I do that through, you know, telling school students about my career and the impact that it has and what it is that I like about it for those who hadn't heard of it either and also mentoring uni students or recent graduates and and as I get more experience mentoring progressively more senior engineers who start at some point to feel like disenchanted with their career uh, I try to catch them and and show them how they can make it is what they want it to be what they dream it to be and and then just general promotion to the to the public about the impact of engineers in society so that we collectively have a better chance of encouraging people who wouldn't have heard about engineering from their parents for example maybe we can get 
parents and school teachers and advisory councils of all of all forms to start you know, putting that vocabulary into students' minds and helping them see that that can actually be an altruistic career. Um, and I think there's a lot of progress that's being made in that, uh, which I'm happy to be a part of. So, so that's my like secondary career. But as for the robotics side, I, um, yeah, I think I knew that I liked maths. And people said, if you like maths, then you might like electrical engineering. They turned out to be right. Like, <laughs> I did like that. Um, but it was a bit, I suppose, unconventional at the time that I had even, like, even just going to university was a bit unconventional because I was only 15. And, and I think it, I look back now and when I see what 15-year-olds sort of look like, um, I feel very different towards the experience. And I'm like, mum, like, how could you let me do that? <laughs> Whereas at the time I felt so sure of myself. And, and I think about it a lot because sometimes there are other times in my life where I can be like so not sure of myself. And, and it's like, what, was, what were the conditions that made me just feel so entitled to that challenge? And, and definitely it was a challenge, but I signed up for it so readily. Um, and I think I, I I don't usually like following rules that I don't understand. And I remember that when I finished year 10 or I was in an eight, nine and 10 class and my friends were in year 10 and we were doing the same work and I was meant to be in like year eight and, and they were going into year 11 and, and I was supposed to stay in year nine. And that was a rule that I did not understand like oh. rationally. So I just didn't follow it. And um, from there, no one seemed to notice. Um, like once I started university, people couldn't really tell that I was younger. I was teaching classes at 16 at the university and nobody really got out, got up and walked out or anything. So I think they couldn't tell. So in that sense, it hasn't really affected my life. Um, and if it has, I think it's probably been for the better because as I got older, I started to think less about what I, enjoyed doing of like maths and you know electronics and more about why I wanted to do it and the impact that I wanted to have on society and I'm glad that I started thinking about those things once I'd already signed up to be an engineer because if it happened the other way I know I've met a lot of people who finished school at the ordinary age and their their top life goal was to make a difference and still in society like engineering isn't what comes to mind and so they end up in a different path my sister for example was doing all the maths and science subjects um and she went into a career in development that she's very happy in uh but it was because she put the impact sort of up as a top priority whereas I put the uh the content I guess of what I was doing as a top priority and it's um yeah, in the end, I found out that, that you can do both, but I'm glad that my priority at the time was being a nerd. <laughs> and then secondary to that, I found out how to be altruistic with it. So which university did you go to? I went to QUT, which is yeah. in Brisbane. Most of my studies were in 
Brisbane area, um, mm -hmm. but thankfully I was in a very strange school that put um, year eight, nine, and ten in the same class, and I and I appreciate my parents for agreeing to that because my mum doing like school drop-offs and pickups, my siblings and I were in three different schools, and and that sacrifice so that I could be happier um, being challenged in that school because I had to leave a school midway through the year um, to make that change because I just wasn't being challenged at mm -hmm. where I was. And yeah, my parents say that that was maybe the, the lowest point in my childhood in terms of like uh, behavior was when I was <laughs> you, you were boredom boredom leads to mischief as the saying yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. so I wonder I, I look at the school system which is not really catered for you know like we're working towards mm. the lowest common denominator like it's it's I, I feel sorry for teachers today um if they challenge with 30 students and yeah. you know like the various levels and they do it will fall to the baseline basically mm -hmm. and um super bright kids well you know what are you going to do you need to either keep yourself busy or you're going to get up to mischief yeah and then and then when you put in the the social pressure of like oh but don't be smart because yeah it'll work against you socially mm. and I'm, I'm think i think that's where i've been luckiest is to be in educational environments where being smart was and celebrate it so some of your accomplishments to date are as a core software engineer on ROS2 used by roboticists around the world and are used in NASA's Viper mission um, designing an innovative robotic partner for children with handwriting difficulties and developing a low-cost USB stethoscope for diagnosing pneumonia in children in Mozambique that absolutely fascinates me. But can you just give us a bit of a wrap up on, on each of these? Yeah, um, I guess I'll work through them in reverse order because that'll be a bit chronological for my life. So I, when I finished uni, somehow I got wind of a project in Melbourne um, that caught my eye, which was the USB stethoscope for diagnosing pneumonia um, in Mozambique and that, I guess I, I say like somehow, but I know that at the time I would have proactively found that, even though I didn't know that that was what I wanted to do. I think I have sort of applied this approach to my career of just, um, just like, nope, 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 not it, not it, not it. Yeah. And then you find something and it's like, yes, that's it. Um, and so, so I moved to Melbourne for that. I felt like I was uh, living a really great life. I remember being very happy there because I moved to a new city. I was exploring and meeting new people and I was working part-time, um, you know, doing electronics three days a week. And then with the rest of my time, I was teaching maths um, to engineering students, which is a hobby of mine and doing uh, some volunteer work with RoboGals. And so that was like a really nice recipe for my happiness that I've actually gone on to recreate um, in later years, the, the most recent years of my life. Uh, but what drew me to it was the, the application of electronics to, uh, you know, to make it make a difference in mm -hmm. in the the health outcomes for pneumonia because if it's treated, if sorry, if it's diagnosed 
then it's very easily treated, but it can be difficult to diagnose when you're a busy rural clinic with lines out the doors. Um, and so that, that low cost technology, I, I found it really inspiring to have the mindset of how can we do more with less? What is accessible? What is available with healthcare workers? We're re using really old phones and trying to make the technology very cheap and affordable. And, and that for me, like just ticked, ticked a lot of boxes for what I wanted to do as, as like my first step in yep. my professional career. And inspired, I guess, by the, the, mini, the mini travel trip to Melbourne all the way from Brisbane, I started thinking, well, um, where else can I go? And, mm. and I had, I, I love studying. I, I really love learning. And so I wanted to do a master's and I did a few robotics subjects in undergrad, but I wanted to do a master's of robotics. And there were two that I saw overseas in Europe that were funded by a, a strange, like a, a unique, um, program by the European Commission to attract non-European students to study in different European universities. Um, and that's kind of where I felt intuitively drawn to, but I had also graduated university uh, with academic medals for both my maths and electrical engineering degrees. And there was an, a sense of obligation I think that I felt to to utilize them and to and I've heard that sometimes students feel that if they get like a good uh, high school graduation score they feel obliged to apply it to the most uh, selective um, degree and, and so I I was wondering like okay what should I be doing with this and and in the should category I ended up applying to a, a master's program in at MIT because I felt that I should and I think I picked something um, I don't know a bit uh, a bit different from what I've been doing in neuroscience or something and and I have never maybe been happier than when I got rejected from that <laughs> from that course because I knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do it's just what I felt that I should do and there was there was a mentor that I had at the time that, that gave me some useful uh, guidance. And, and I remember being in his office, the Dean of Engineering at QUT at the time, Martin Betts, and he said, what do you want to do? Because I was like, I don't, and, and, well, and the, I remember the answer that I said out loud was like, 20 year old Deanna wants to go do these European masters that like yeah. pay you to travel. Like that's what I wanted to do. And so that's um, what I ended up doing. And I only heard about it sort of through the grapevine of um, a very, like, another near miss in my career. It seems to be a bit of a, a theme. Um, and, and I think a lot of well, yeah. So it wasn't um, it wasn't nothing in terms of you know throwing away academic achievements. I still got a full scholarship and was the first Australian to to get that full 
scholarship to get paid to travel. I was reading the fine print very carefully because <laughs> our class, we moved um, to a new country every six months <laughs> and we all moved together. So we moved to France, Spain, Scotland. I went on to Switzerland. And, but within our class, I had classmates from at least 20 countries, uh, a small class of like 30 people. And we were from Mexico, Argentina, Egypt, Nepal, Poland, Macedonia. I remember having to like Google some of the <laughs> countries. I hadn't even heard of them before. And that turned out to be uh, really, it brought a dimension that I didn't even appreciate um, at the time. I hadn't Hadn't I knew living in different cultures is something that I enjoyed or expected to enjoy, uh, but but also living with people with such different life experiences, um, I loved that. So, so that's how I ended up. Uh, I don't know, living in five different cities in the first <laughs> first two and a half years of my, I guess, graduate life. Um, and I remember, so you mentioned um, one of the projects that I've worked on is a, an educational partner for children with handwriting difficulties. And this is called the Co-Writer Project. And I sought that out when I had to do a project for my master's thesis. And again, it was a sort of like, nope, nope, nope um, process of, I guess elimination until everything's been eliminated and you think, well, I want to do something more with my time, more, something that speaks to me more about, um, you know, inspirational impact. And so I went through, I don't know, somehow, I, look, I don't remember the details of how I ended up at EPFL um, specifically, but I maybe I just wanted to move to Switzerland. <laughs> and, and so moved to Switzerland, I did. And, and that's when I arrived at the Chile Computer Human Interaction for Learning and Instruction Lab at EPFL for this co-writer project, the, the premise was that, okay, learning by teaching is really useful in all fields of education but how can we do it with handwriting you know a teacher can't pretend to be bad um, for a students and and so who's going to do it and they had already come up with the premise of using a robot but it was a they were stuck on like okay but how <laughs> because because robots that are able to write they're expensive and they're scary and they're not good for working with children but then the robots that are good for working with children. We ended up working with the NOW robot, which has been designed to work with children, but it can't hold a pen, like it can't write. So where we did end up um, uh, by the end of my thesis working, like testing this device in schools with teachers, like spoiler alert, we got it to work, but there was a lot of creativity needed in order to address that like technical limitation. And so, what I ended up, uh, kind of the breakthrough that, that made it possible was I said, like, does the robot actually have to write? And working with adults, maybe, but, but working with children, definitely not. It, it, I made it just point at the tablet like ET. Mm -hmm. And and that with the, the writing, would it 
appear in like synchronized with a robot and the children would think that the robot was writing enough that they would engage and then we would be able to um, get them to correct the robot's handwriting. And so for me, that time, like that was a hugely busy time to, to after four months, within four months, you know, develop the, the, the novel AI for that learning algorithm for handwriting that hadn't really, there was no need for that before this application. So that was all new. Um, and then also the, the, the technical implementation of getting the robot to pretend to write. Um, having that tested in schools with teachers within four months was just a huge accomplishment, let's say. <laughs> like yeah. it was, um, it's, it is something that I, I, I look back on and I'm like, wow, how did I do that? And, and now that, that project continues, um, occupational therapists working with children with formally diagnosed handwriting difficulties and there's a spin-off project um, with it. But, they, but the thing that made it like technically possible that I could get from zero to 100 within four months uh, was the use of ROS, the, the robot operating system. And that's really sort of what inspired ROS to come about in the first place is that roboticists should be able to focus on the problem they're trying to solve and not the problem of getting robots up and running, just doing basic things. Like let's share our joint efforts in getting robots to do basic things so that then individual researchers can focus on what it is specifically that they care about. So that's, um, that was critical and is what originally, or I guess ultimately inspired me to want to contribute to Ross itself, um, which, is, which I did end up doing as like my next professional step, but there was 18 months roughly of uh, sabbatical in between because I um I'll admit they I worked myself so hard in my masters that a couple of or at least at least one of those months um in my time off was just uh not doing very much at all <laughs> well you know you sound as though you've packed an awful lot into your life even at that stage I mean how old yeah. is you been at like 22 like any normal yeah. 22 year old like they, they finished year 12 they yeah. took a year off to find themselves so that yeah. makes them 18 19 I mean by that stage you'd finished your yeah. degree you've already been teaching you know, so like I think the scale and, and speed that you're doing things, I'm expecting great things of you by the age of 60. Look, like I don't know what your resume mm -hmm. is going to look like then, but um, you're going to make the rest of us look really bad. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, well, I'm proud of myself. Like I, I'm proud to say that. You should down. be. No, you <laughs> <slow> down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so actually, like the, the, the age advantage that I had when I was younger, I've, um, I've, if you can call it an advantage, uh, just in terms of, anyway, I I've lost I've lost it to to a slower way of living that that I I sort of 
I used to, I try to be more sustainable now, but I used to work very like 100% on, 100% off. And so I just go full steam um, in my professional life and then take a year and a half off. And then, and after that work, I, you know, I was working on my own projects. I built a four shaft loom and some software for that. Just, um, just things that I wanted to work on. I, I visited 15 countries and I spent two months in Nicaragua repairing medical equipment um, in rural clinics so that, you know, they, they just had cupboards and cupboards of, of broken devices. And some of them, I didn't even know what they were because I didn't have medical training. And so in broken Spanish, I'd had to get them to explain to me what it was, what it was meant to do, and then I'd fix it and, and show them how to fix it again for the, for the next time that it inevit inevitably it broke. Um, but we helped them get back and running some microscopes, nebulizers, centrifuges, that sort of equipment. Uh, that was a lot of fun. That's like, uh, I, I remember those months as being some of the, the the funnest of my life, just troubleshooting every day. Like I really love, <laughs> it's not, um, I'm happy when I get bugs or um, yeah, maybe pictures in my circuit. I can see you someone that needs to be constantly engaged and kept busy. So have you heard of like the 10 minute boredom in your day? This does not apply to you. Um, it's, it's different for me now. Because uh, yeah. after that, I, well, like the, the last few years of my life, I've actually, I've been working three days a week again. And I've been, mm. um, you know, I value different things now. I think I used to, I used to value being busy all the time. It was a, it was a complicated transition uh, emotionally to, to value other things, uh, to, to let go of valuing like the more, more, more approach to life. Uh, but, but in its place, or, or I guess it comes at the cost of other things, right? Yeah. And so, so recognizing that trade-off, um, then I've tried to, be, be a bit more balanced. <laughs> so, so you've mentioned the ROS framework, um, and of course this is used by roboticists all over the world. Tell us a little bit about your experience and challenges about it. Yeah, um, so so my how I got into that, I had been, I mentioned that like I wanted to contribute to it because it's, it's used by everyone and I knew that uh, pretty much any robotics job that I would work in for the rest of my career, this would, this would be a skill that they look for. And, and there was a, a little like life hack that I was using at, at, during that sabbatical um, to, to try to accumulate self-confidence in different libraries that are used a lot in robotics by contributing to them. They're open source. Uh, so OpenCV, Eigen, ROS, uh, later on Python. Like I've contributed to these libraries as a, as a way of building that expertise in them. And, and the cool thing about open source is that like you don't have to be working for those organizations to get that foot in the door. Like nobody gives or 
takes permission away for you to do that. You just uh, go and be proactive about it. So, so before I applied to be a software engineer at Open Robotics, which is the, um, the group behind robot operating system, I had already like submitted uh, a bug fix for, um, at the time it was in ROS2, really early stage development. So when I got there, we were releasing alphas, betas, um, and, and it was just a team of like five of us. And, and I know that working there, like in Silicon Valley, you think a lot of people would come to the office and they'd be expecting all of these robots to be there. And, and people from, you know, NASA or DARPA, NIST, they, they rely on, on Ross and they would come and they'd expect this huge team of people to be there. And, they, and, and in reality, what it was, um, was just in, in an industrial estate out the back of Silicon Valley, there was, you know, five of us and no robots. <laughs> and, and, and it's, we were doing the core, we were doing the framework, the infrastructure that allows this huge international community to thrive. But, but we ourselves at Open Robotics, we're not, we're not the community, we're, the, we're the, the stewards of the community that make it possible. And so individually, um, our work looked pretty different and, and quite surprising, I think, to, to what people imagine it is. And, and that's for people who, who even know what open robotics do. So at the time it was called Open Source Robotics Foundation. And I don't think any of my friends had heard of that organization. You know Ross, but you don't know the people behind Ross because that's sort of the getting to your point of like the challenges in that sort of role is that you're very behind the scenes. Um, people have not heard of your organization in part because free and open source software sometimes is just taken for granted. It is, um, it's something that people, people use and they love it, but borderline on feeling entitled to it. <laughs> and, and it can make your life uh, as a developer, like behind the scenes. So, you know, we're contributing um, core features to ROS2. So I was implementing like the logging and time implementations in ROS2. And at the same time, trying to maintain ROS1, maintainer for ARVIS and different packages in ROS1. And that juggling act can lead to, you know, sometimes you have community members that their only interaction with you is when they have bugs that need to be fixed, when there are release notes that aren't uh, up to scratch or when you're taking a while to review their pull request um, contribution. And so if that's your only interaction with the users, it's, it can be a bit um, disheartening day to day, but thankfully that's why um, we have, or one of the reasons why we have the Roscon International Conference for, that's primarily for ROS users, but I, I think a fantastic benefit of it is that as ROS developers or like on the ROS core team, we could 
interact with our customers and 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 be appreciated and for one or two days be feel a little special because it can be um a thankless job yeah it definitely can be a thankless job it's um but there's it's different um these days there's huge industry support there are a lot of working groups now that 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 bear some of the um, some of the weight, I suppose, in maintaining this infrastructure. That what different groups of roboticists need is different. So, people in autonomous vehicles, they have particular certifications that they want to be incorporated into the core. People for um, you know drones will prioritize features that are more like multi-robot systems and and it's the the diversity of the robotics community is what makes um you know ross as in enriching as it is but it also can make it uh you know you get pulled in a lot of directions uh if you try to so so to shift that to the community has been um a tremendous uh advantage over the past few years, a great change to see. Your most recent work with Kuka LBR Med Robotics uh, in skin printing robots. Tell us about this. Sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and, and this is, um, it was interesting enough that even, like this is what brought me out of my uh, second sabbatical saying, by that point in my time, when I left uh, Silicon Valley, I had not—I had still not learnt the uh, the lesson of um, balance. <laughs> I, I had been swept into working long hours, um, long weeks, you know, by my own accord, and and wanted a break, and so I took um, another <laughs> year, year and a half off, went to. 15 countries again um, from like I, I really love animals I love traveling for cultures but also to, to see animals and so saw penguins and beautiful hiking in Patagonia and lemurs in Madagascar and that's um that was that sort of recharged me and and part of what I did during that break and like recharging was just make contact with a lot of friends that maybe I'd fallen out of touch with when I was prioritizing um, other things in my life and so so one of the people that I caught up with was a friend that I had met he's Australian and he and I were both volunteering in Nicaragua at the same time repairing medical equipment you know I guess four four years earlier and he was chatting to me about his work at a bioprinting startup in Sydney that gives biomedical researchers the ability to print these tiny cell structures in three dimensions that they can then embed live living cells in and, and customize the, what they call like, extracellular matrix so that those cells behave as they would in a body and 
like a human body as opposed to a, you know a petri dish in two dimensions and and that is really impactful work like this is one of my favorite like intersections of impactful work that also is really difficult technology because in order to print these cell structures you need to have kind of like a two-part epoxy so you've got this um two-part bioink and and droplet a and droplet b have to land in the same spot these are nanoliter droplets the size uh, building up a, a cell structure that's the size of a pinhead like very precise mechanical software electrical engineering has to go into that um and so so he was uh he was one of the early employees of that company and it sounded really exciting and when I was telling him that oh yeah I was maybe starting my friend's name is Zach Artist and when I was telling Zach that I was starting to think about what I might do next um professionally he told me that they were working on a, a robotics application of that bioprinting technology for treating people who have widespread burns, maybe through bushfires as an example, how to apply spray on skin. Um, we were working with Professor Fiona Wood who invented spray on skin, Australian of the year 2005 but do it more precisely and in this extracellular matrix that it would be customized specifically to the patient and it wouldn't require a dermal scaffolding that normally they have to apply three weeks earlier. And so you've got this, this huge um, clinical um, out, like you can, it's really impressive what spray on skin can do, but you still have this three week delay before you can get to those results. So to combine our technologies and have that delivered in the one treatment means that patients can get on their way to healing faster. And our, our, our dream with this technology is that we can enable their body to regenerate healthy functional skin that's, that's there in in place of uh, skin grafts or scar tissue that would ordinarily um, occur from current treatments. And you get this healthy skin that maybe one day will include sweat glands and hair follicles and it'll stretch like normal skin. And this for people who have survived burns can change the quality of life for, for the trajectory of their life, so they don't have to stay in an air-conditioned room uh, because they can't sweat, for example. And so that's like that's the value proposition of um, this technology for society. And then the value proposition as a nerd is like, well, we need someone to do the robotics for it. We need someone to answer questions of like, how's the robot know where to print on the wound? Um, the wounds are going to be unique to each of the patients and. How can we get this uh, really precise bioprinting droplets to, to land where they need to when the patient is breathing? Um, that sort of motion compensation or, or even asking these more fundamental questions of like, do we even need to do motion compensate? Do we need to compensate for breathing in order to get the clinical outcomes that we want? Um, Zach and I were 
the founding engineers on this. And, you know, what they say about startup life is true in that you wear many hats. And, and that was really the case for us being sort of in a startup within a startup, this spin-off um, and having to, <clears throat> he and I were, um, yeah, doing a lot of things in addition to engineering work, I can tell you. <laughs> Startups are crazy. How does this compare to, say, your Ross and academia? Um, it's the yeah. It's what really uh, surprised me. I remember when I showed up to work at uh, different research labs over my like career I guess including in undergrad but you get excited to to see in real life the the projects that you've seen on the website of research labs and and see them in person they all sound really inspirational and sometimes you go there and it's like yes that was very impactful but the value or like the definition of impact for a a, a lab or in academia is getting papers published and and what was so there are similarities in um when i worked on ross as with the bioprinting and that they were both startups you know you're in a small team but really different small teams because the small team that i was in in silicon valley was all software engineers <laughs> we were all working on russell it was much more specialized hat wearing um, whereas a small team that Zach and I were in, we were we were pitching to funding sources, we were submitting patent applications and uh, contracting medical device consultants, and and we were even getting running the feedback sessions with clinicians, and and that's where like the customers are driving the impact in, in startups. And, and for us at Inventia, the customers were the clinicians and, and their definition of done is like when you're changing patients' lives. Like that's what done looks like as opposed to a paper published. Um, it's, it was hugely motivating to work so closely um, with a very like rich interdisciplinary team of like scientists and different types of engineers, but also industrial designers, but really importantly, the clinicians who are there sort of like stamping their foot impatiently of like, when can we use it in the clinic? And that um, connection to the end goal, uh, I think we were really lucky to have that. And that, that's sort of the, the fire that, that drives startups to uh to to innovate uh or just do whatever it takes to to survive you know it's um you see you see you need to have that connection to uh to the impact and what you're working towards and we certainly had that for um for that medical device working with Fiona Wood. 2022 has been a huge year for you, like amongst all the other things that you've been doing, but in terms of just recognition. So you've been recognized as a young engineer um, 
of the year across Australia by the professionals industry body. This is awarded to an engineer under 35 from across Australia for combination of innovation, impact and overall contribution to the engineering profession and to the well-being of, the, um, of people and communities. You are also recognized by RoboHub as one of the 50 women globally in robotics to know about. So um, first up, the engineering award. What, what does this mean to you? Uh, yeah, gosh, it's, um, look, anytime you're chosen from peers that you know are doing incredible work, it's, you're sort of, uh, it's a bit breathtaking. So uh, this one, I'm especially thrilled to have the visibility of, as, as you mentioned, like the, the criteria for this award is, it's ultimately impact. And, and so when we, when we choose engineers, and we highlight them to the impact that they've made, we have the opportunity to not just sell engineering or like talk about engineering as this broad abstract field that like engineers can work on anything but we can translate that to specific instances of like this engineer did these things and, and that in my experience is a much more compelling narrative to that you can use to inspire people and get them to engage with engineering as a potential career and so and so for me it's a, it's a great opportunity to to promote that impact that engineers have and and it's for for even for current engineers to show that it's like hey if you if you want to have an impact and you're wondering like oh is it doable is it worth it like we we need to showcase role models who have done it and and, you know, maybe sometimes done it at all costs. Like I've picked up and moved a lot. I, when I came back from Silicon Valley to Australia, I took a 40% pay cut to work on products that I care about because they align with my values. And if, if you're surrounded by people whose values are different to yours, it can be lonely. And that loneliness, I think, you know, it makes it harder to, to stay the course, but to, to look people up and see, oh, they've done it as well. Um, their values align with mine and like they push through, then that's something that is, yeah, I hope it will help retain the engineers that, that we've worked hard to create. Um, that, that would be, that would be uh, a nice goal for me. I, I've had, I definitely, through my earlier outreach, I used to work um, a lot with QUT in their engineering outreach. And, and now I, um, I work with UTS for the same thing of just, uh, miss. <laughs> I was gonna say selling engineering. I certainly think there's a lot to sell, but I'm not, I just want to raise visibility and let people choose for themselves. Um, but I've had girls come up to me and say like, you're the reason that I became an engineer and, and that has been like one of the biggest achievements in my personal life, but it doesn't stop there. I think it's also, um, you know, maybe one day somebody will mention to me like, you're the reason I stuck 
to engineering, you know, and I, I got into it uh, just because of whatever, but uh, I was considering dropping out, leaving the profession. You know, there are a lot of people who do that and, and role models, I think, is one of the many ways that we can help people um, stick to what it is that they're passionate about. Listen, what a thrill. I'd love it if someone came up to me and said, you're the reason I've done that. Congratulations. Oh. I think that's, yeah, like that's really something special. Thank you. You know, you've packed a lot in your life and I, I know you're going to do more, but talk to me about mentors and have you got them? What do you think their role, role is? Yeah, um, it's... I can give, I definitely have mentors to answer the easy question. Like I absolutely do. Um, and, and sometimes you don't necessarily think of them as mentors because they can be so crafty that uh, they, uh, they're very gently guiding you. I remember I used to say, oh, it's a, I never heard about engineering. I don't know how I got into it. And it, in my mind, that is the case. But... I think I had over the course of my childhood been gently nudged in that direction, like subconsciously. Uh, and, and my mum told me actually that she found when I was younger, maybe nine, um, she found a robotics camp. I, I remembered going to a robotics camp. And so it's like, oh, maybe that like set, you know, the, the course in motion or, or whatnot. And but she said, oh, you didn't want to go to that. Like originally, I, I don't know. I remember she said that she was really surprised that I didn't want to go, but, but she had to really push me to go do this robotics camp for girls. And I, I, um, I appreciate that she did because sometimes I think that's what mentors can be sometimes is that they know better. Um, <laughs> they, they just have that wisdom of like, trust me on this. I think you'll enjoy this and and she also when I was going to work in Melbourne I was kind of preparing myself to to ask for more money um, than the stipend that they were offering they were offering it as an undergrad internship I was a graduate oh it was distressing but my mum was like do you even want to like do you want more money or do you maybe just want to work less and that was like she, she had been around me enough to know, um, to sort of sense what my values were and then just nudge me in that direction. And, and so that knowing better definitely is a, strength, a, a characteristic of my mentors. And from what I mentioned as well from the Dean of Engineering, um, at the time he, he had the ability to remind me what mattered to me. Uh, and by asking, like, what do you want? And it's a really simple question, but I think that's what mentors can do is um, remind you sometimes that if you are considering going against the norm, they'll be there to, like, back you up in that decision. And even sometimes, like, not let you say no to those decisions like really like encourage you because it's hard um it's hard I think to not 
difficult. I, get, I think it's difficult in a specific emotional way that it is uncomfortable. <laughs> it's uncomfortable and it's scary to go against the grain. Um, and so for me, people who have done it before is something that I leverage a lot. That type of mentor, people who have lived startup life, people who have worked with robots that I've worked before, uh, I reach out to them. I create this sort of network. That's something that I especially had to do when I was working at Inventia on the skin printing robot because I was the only roboticist at Inventia. And that's not how I like to work. I like to be around people who have um, specific technical expertise because they've done it before. And so I created that environment for myself, like internationally, virtually. I created what I called like my virtual robotics team. Even though at the company I was the only roboticist, I had. Um, I reached out to people that's like, you've been through this before. Like, what have you learned? What can you share with me so that I don't have to make the same mistakes? And, and I even saw earlier today that I, when I chose that master's overseas, I was writing to someone who I saw had done it before and I was like, hey, what was it like? And so this has been a, a strategy that I've used uh, throughout my career because I have unintentionally uh, piece by piece built up a rather unconventional career it's mm. it's you won't meet people that have had the same path as me but at each individual step there were a lot of people who had done the same thing when I quit my job to go traveling on every continent I met people who had done the same <laughs> but yeah. but but when I was in Silicon Valley like making the leap Everyone's like, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like, that's definitely going against the grain. And it was going against that grain. But when you find communities that it's like, oh, yeah, me too, then you're just like, oh, cool. I just um, fit in with this group. So that's, uh, that's a different sort of mentorship. Um, but that power of community, I think, has, has really helped me just feel comfortable in, in, in being uh, a little unconventional in some of my life choices. Listen, hats off to you. I think you've made very brave decisions that uh, <laughs> they don't they don't sound as though they were easy. I mean, you make it sound so easy, but like oh, oh, there's lots of complexity in what you've done. So we're going to have to end. I'm mindful of our time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Where can our audience reach out to you should they want to contact you? Besides, obviously, on LinkedIn, if you're not following Deanna, they're <laughs> doing this, but um, do you have an email or somewhere or what is your preferred contact? Yeah, feature? definitely. People can write to me um, anytime. I, I certainly have cold call reached out to a lot of other people. You'd find my website, uh, dhood.io, at least that's the domain for now. Um, and But LinkedIn will keep updated with the best contact points so go there first and then you'll uh, funnel off to how to get in touch in the future Diana thank you so much for your time it's it's been really an absolute pleasure meeting you and speaking with you thanks Nikki I, I really enjoyed the the reflection opportunity I love that that's what all my guests do I give you the opportunity <laughs> to reflect and shout out to your mom who I think was going <laughs> to prod you in the right direction the so, gentle prod a gentle the gentle prod, prod. So to our audience, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I look forward to your company again. 
uh, wherever you are, look after yourself, stay safe and have a good day. Mm -hmm.